This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefields Services Company, Zoandes. Seems appropriate that they are back for the 100th episode, part two. You can find them at zolandes.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. It's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. This is episode 100, part 2. It's a collection of clips from some of my favorites of the first uh, 99 episodes. It's a real challenge to go back over three and a half years and over 100 guests because we've had several episodes with multiple people on and we've also obviously certain people have been on multiple times but we we have had over 100 guests on the podcast and I'm gonna offer you a selection first will be John Evans anybody that listens to the podcast or knows me knows John Evans used to be my boss at FMC Lithium he's also been a great mentor to me both while I was at FMC Lithium and since I left. When I became a corporate cast-off, for lack of a better term, John Evans was the first one to reach out to me. He was a great help. It's possible that uh, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it weren't for John Evans. So I I owe him a a debt of gratitude, and I'm not shy about uh, making that uh, clear. This is likely to be an episode that goes well over an hour. You may have to listen to it in more than one sitting. And even if you've listened to all the prior episodes, and there are a number of people that have, I suggest you give this one a listen simply because I've tried to include some of the more interesting comments and most of this stuff isn't uh, time sensitive. History doesn't change and uh, some of the concepts that are related in these clips don't change either. I'm not going to tell you who everybody that's going to be on is because, honestly, I've only decided on four, and I'm probably going to do six or seven. But with that, let's get started with John Evans. Lithium, these deposits have been around forever. They weren't needed. They are needed now. I mean, Joe, you you went through what the demand is. The current hard rock and brine deposits, there's going to be other resources needed. Uh, and clay is, is a, a very viable one, and I believe in it. I mean, the cash cost and the technology that we're going to use for it is it's off the shelf. One of the things I've talked to several people about that have asked me about Lithium Americas at this conference, and being what's considered a junior, people tend not to not to understand that even as a junior, you actually have one of the most competent teams assembled, both for Kachari and also the alliance with Gangfen, but also for Thacker Pass. So you can can you talk a little bit about the team you have? Yeah, from a management team standpoint, you've 
you've got very experienced guys, whether it's here or here in South America, between uh, Franco and his own background uh, in the U.S. with Alexi, who's a master's level hydrogeologist, Rene LeBlanc, who's one of the leaders in the industry from a processing standpoint. I'd say he's uh, and Mr. Lee are the two guys can talk yep. for hours. They're on the same level. Uh, and then even underneath that, Tom Benson, you know, from a volcanology and geologist standpoint, uh, and the team that's been built here, the team at Nevada, world class. And they're all from blue chip places. Nobody here is uh, a lawyer, uh, a financier. Um, they're all, these are technically qualified people. Yeah, and that's really, to prove it. that's really the point I wanted to tease out is it, it is difficult for the typical junior or even more of the major companies to attract and keep great talent. And, and you've done that. And you have two interesting projects. And I think what Renee said on the podcast we did last June is, I like to build things. So he's getting the opportunity to build two things. Yeah, we don't have the politics here that you'd have at a public company. Everybody joined here because they believe in what we're doing. Uh, and it's a different group of people. We're, these are operators. They're the kind of folks that you bring in to build stuff and operate stuff. So the attitude here is very much you get it done, no BS, uh, very, very much driven by engineers. There are uh, issues, obviously, between the U.S. and China over trade mm-hmm. um, and has spilled over into a bit of resource nationalism as well. For us, it's helpful in that I think it's shined a light on why the U.S. Uh, hasn't leveraged its rich mineral resources. I, it's it's ranked pretty low in the world from a developing jurisdiction versus places like Canada and Australia, and it shouldn't be because uh, it's it's pretty rich in, in a lot of the key minerals. So in that respect, I think it's good. But I also think that things are going to settle down between both countries because they're so closely tied together, even at an academic level. So it's helpful in, in some cases. It, it's difficult for us in that Hey, look, uh, I've been friends with Gangfen for a long time. There's nothing be- between us, uh, but we have to, to wade through these things. Um, Kachari doesn't matter, uh, but in Nevada, it's, uh, it makes things more complicated. Um, for us as a company, uh, we'll have a, a, a broader view of partners on that because we'll have to. That's just reality. Yeah, I, I actually think this is, in a, in a perverse sense, beneficial for Lack because it, it will have, force you to bring in to build up a, a broader Asia relationship, probably. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, they're a shareholder, and I was ready at the U.S. Senate to ask about, well, you have a Chinese shareholder. I do, and, and AEP, who keeps the lights on in Washington, D.C., is 10% owned by a Chinese investment company. So, uh, you know, Chesapeake, Pioneer, energy companies in the U.S., it's nothing wrong with having a Chinese shareholder. In terms of operating that project uh, and the staff there, Joe's right, we'll, uh, we'll have other partners there. And, and for us as a company, it's just it's new opportunities. And we've had several folks ask already, which is good. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, the U.S. can play a big part uh, in the growth of the industry, and it's going to help spur development of a whole new industrial supply chain. So it's exciting to be part of it. I've got a, a question just in terms of your new role. What do you view as the biggest challenge you face as CEO of a young organization? I came out of private equity, so the the uh, skill set around managing cash is very important because obviously we're not creating revenue yet. Um, it's balancing that at the same time as we have to grow and we need to build out capabilities in the company. So uh, picking the right um, areas to work on first, getting the right types of people because we're pretty small. We've been very deliberate about who we hire, what type of culture they are. So it's finding more of those people with that type of DNA. 
Um, and really, it's just around execution. I mean, it's very clear over the next two years, and I know exactly what we need to do. We need to start Couchery up and get it done, and then Thacker needs to get to a point where um, there's a, uh, a financing map for that. The permitting is completed, and the plan is there, and the shovels are in the ground. I mean, it's, it's all about execution for us. What do you think is, if you take your experience when you were at FMC Lithium, what's the one or two things that you learned that'll help you the most in yes. developing lack. The nice part here is I'm in charge, right? So I don't, <laughs> I don't have to uh, 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 argue as much with folks. Our board is, uh, is, and I think is composed of folks that are very interested too. Um, look, uh, I think this is a tough industry and uh, things are going to happen. It's not necessarily bad, but I'll go back to the word being agile. Uh, you need to understand that things are not going to go to plan. They never do. Uh, and we need to be able to roll with that, and we need to have an organization that can deal with that kind of stuff and still deliver in and around you know what we promise. I think that's the one thing I see in this industry, that, and the reason why outside investors and also customers are dubious is that there's not a history or track record of delivering. Uh, and sometimes you you got to deviate a little bit. Sometimes it's going to cost a little bit more money, um, but it pays off in spades if you deliver. So uh, I, in, in five to ten years, I see us as... Uh, one of the big six or seven or one of the, whatever it will be by then uh, will be on the lower end of the cost curve and, you know, we'll be one of the uh, high-quality guys, you know, servicing the types of markets that where the growth is, and that's the energy market. I want, I want people to come to us for their tougher requests and their needs and what we will have the ability to, to execute or deliver. This next segment features Gang Fen, Chairman Lee Langbin and Vice Chairman Wang Shen. I've known both of these gentlemen for the better part of two decades. Actually, in the case of Wang Shaoshen, uh, substantially longer than two decades. I consider both gentlemen to be personal friends. When my family moved to Shanghai in 2005, the first people to take us out to dinner were Li Langbin and Wang Shaoshen. I've spent a lot of time with them over the years, whether it be in China, the U.S., Japan, various places. They've been very significant both to my career when I was at FMC and continue to be so uh, after I found Global Lithium. Now that both gentlemen are billionaires and Gangfen is where it is in the lithium world, it's easy to appreciate Gangfen. But I will say that I saw their potential 20 years ago was writing that Gangfen would ultimately become one of the top, if not the top, lithium company in the world. And I started writing that as early as 2014, and a lot of people kind of scoffed at me and scratched their head. Without further ado, Li Langbin and Wang Shaoshen from November 2018. Province. Yeah, I grew up in the Xinjiang province. I was born in Xinjiang, Urumqi, and uh, I, by, when my university was in Beijing. After university, in nine, it was uh, 1990, I joined the lithium industries by coincidence. I had no idea about the lithium before I joined the lithium company, because that time it's uh, a state-owned company, the lithium, uh, Xinjiang Lithium Plant. That's, that was my first job, that's in 1990. But actually, Mr. Lee joined the lithium industries two years earlier, in 1988. 
but uh, he was with uh, another state-owned lithium company in Jiangxi province. So this is where we began in the Vista Lithium. As I recall, Mr. Li, when he graduated from college, he was assigned to work in a lithium company. Is that is that correct, or did I? Did I uh, actually, maybe you can ask Mr. Li to talk a little bit yeah. about this. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, translate to your question. Uh, <笑>我觉得是是真的还是不错的想法我觉得是是真的还是不错的想法是是真的还是不错的想法是是真的还是不错的想法是是真的还是不错的想法是是真的还是不错的想法是是真的还是不错的想法是是真的还是不错的想法
，在北京。我记得那那天是中国的元宵节，我赶过去见他。<笑>啊，我不晓得他记不记得<笑>那天是中国的元宵节。<笑>呃、uh, ，Do you remember that was the Chinese we came to Beijing to meet you? Yeah, I remember. It was a very interesting meeting from that beginning, and then the the next time I met Mr. Lee was in Jiangxi, and you picked me up at. The, so yeah, there's a there's kind of a connection between the the, the three guys that goes back uh, almost twenty years. Gangfans come to Argentina this week. I had the pleasure of being with Mr. Lee and Mr. Wang in、uh, Salta Province and then Hujui Province. The two of the projects they're involved with. Yesterday in Hujui, we met with the Secretary of Mining, the Governor. We had a celebration for Gangfans Project at Cuchari. Last night we flew flew back to Buenos Aires, and today these guys meet the President of Argentina. The- at this point, we move back. Several years and have a discussion about how Gangfen decided to quit buying chloride from me when I was at FMC and started buying brine from SQM, shipping it across the ocean and converting it into lithium chemicals. If you go back, and I, I don't remember if when Mr. we met in Shanghai and. And Mr. Lee took his calculator and typed in thirty-two hundred, and and put it up to my eyeballs and said, "This has got to be the new chloride price, or I'm going to bring brine in from from SQM." And at the time, you were paying me six thousand a ton, and and I said, "I love you guys, but I can sell it to somebody else." And and I I didn't realize what a smart move that was at the time because, like many people, I thought, "Who's going to bring that?" Solution across the Pacific. Who, who who can do this? And Mr. Lee did it. And I I just like to get his thinking on how that decision. But then how did he decide in the future there was going to become a point where he was going to need his own resources? But at this time he could still leverage SQM's excess underflow, Bewley brines, and other raw materials. So if he could just talk about how he thought about. When to make that move? When to break my heart by telling me my price needed to go down by forty-five percent, and how to go forward? Okay, let me translate your question first. Uh, 就问题是当时呃，应该是零零五年、零四呃、零六年、零七年的时候，呃，当时你跟他讲，卢化里价格要降到三千二，要不然的话，我们就用智利的 SQM 的卤水来做卢化里。当时他的价格还在卖五千六千，他说没办法，你不要这个价格，别人有很多人抢着要。就是你当时是怎么想这未来的这个资源这块是怎么考虑的？呃，我们因为干风呢，呃，创业的阶段呢是没有资源的，所以呢时时刻刻在关注这个资源的一个变化。呃，尤其是 S 科姆卖卤水给我们以后，当然那个时候是信息不对称，他们不是不清楚，他们肯定认为我们是。套他的话的是吧？就是只是作为一个筹码来跟他谈的，但呢那个时候呢，我们确确实实在想办法来来解决这个问题。呃，那因为做企业是要讲究成本的，成本越低，那企业的竞争力就越强。那这那个我们从 S 科目引进这个卤水来生产卤化的一样，那确确实实降降低了成本百分之二十五，那就我们能占百分之二十五，别人就要亏，就就差不多占不到一分钱。
所以呢，在靠这个呢，我们就跻身了全球最大的金属锭生产商，啊。呃、uh, ，at that time, you know the when we when Mr. Lee talked with you about the using brine to produce chloride, at that time we already developed the process. And... He didn't tell me. <laughs> It's not. It's not only. That time, I don't know. Maybe Shankar. It's not. It's not.、Uh, he said it's not. Was not just for bargaining.、Uh, using that for bargaining, actually, it was real because we want to reduce our cost、yeah. uh, by producing from more upstream resources、mm-hmm. uh, to the, to our products. So actually, we have、uh, successfully reduced by cost, but more than twenty five percent by using the brine from Chile. Well, at that time, I I believed Mr. Lee's thinking that he could do it. What I thought would be the limiting factor was the logistics, just the number of toads, just and and I was wrong, and he was right. That's why he's sitting where he is, and I'm sitting where I am. <laughs> 呃，当时就是不相信我们这个物流上能够解决这个问题，把卤水从智利运到中国来，没有想到这个问题，对，所以他当时他是错了，所以他现在坐在那里，<笑>现在坐在这里，恭喜恭喜。但是呢，我是觉得从从生意伙伴上来讲呢，就就就就是一个很好的一个合作伙伴。呃，帮我们提高了很多，包括我们怎么来做年度计划呀，怎么都是从他身上学到的，啊、呃，对我们来讲是也是我们应该感恩这个角色啊。嗯 ，Actually, we、uh, as a government thing we should have,、um, appreciate Joe Larry's works in the past on a lot. We also learned a lot from Joe. It's also how to do the business plan at that time when government was still young. Lee 先生，谢谢你。Yeah, I think there's a one. Principle unchanged, which which is、uh, step by step. So in the, every steps, we set up this strategy or target, which is we can is achievable, not too high to to achieve. So this is the reason why we becoming today. But also we when we becoming bigger, we have to adjust our strategy accordingly, from time to time. So that's、uh, just to follow follow the nature first. You had to be friends. You were friends with everybody. Unlike the rest of the industry, who kind of there were battles between rivals. Gangfen was close to SQM. You had a great relationship with the, the Felipe Anguita, going back that far. And you were friends with me. You were both friends with me. You were friends with everybody. You you did business with everybody. Just like some thoughts about that whole strategy of. And one more question: Every all the big three at one point tried to buy Gangfen, and I always believed that Mr. Lee considered Gangfen his baby, and he would never sell his baby. But I just wonder if he was ever tempted to actually sell the company. 那个审判官讲：“哎，你吃太多了吧？你给给个百分之十五就够了。<笑>既然我们提出来，他不要，再过三年想要钱来买我们的，呃，这个有一点戏剧性的啊，就是从这个来讲。That's that's very interesting story. Uh, uh, 2004, when Mr. Lee first visit SQM, and on the on the flight, he think that he wants to do something seriously with SQM, so he want to propose to give 25 percent of Gunfen share to SQM for free, to get the support of the raw material supply. And uh, he's uh, at that time the as a Shen Huaiguo, he's he was yeah, the、I、representative、know. of SQM、yes. in China, 
uh, said 25 maybe too much. <laughs> <laughs> then he comes to a uh, proposal for 15%. And uh, SKM did, I remember that time, SKM did due diligence. Uh, after the completed due diligence, he, they quit. They, they uh, didn't want any share of the government at that time, 2004. And 2006, uh, SKM come back. And at that time, they want to make investment, pay the money for the for the share. I, re- I remember. Just, just I two remember, years, yeah, yeah. two yeah. years later. I didn't know about later. 2004 and the 25 percent, but I knew about 2006. So, and every time when we, at that time, uh, when we discussed with FMC or Roku or SQM, at that time because government was a small company, we need to have a strong support for the raw material supply. So we were serious to discuss the cooperation with uh, all three big three companies at that time. So, uh, but in the end. Uh, we didn't just didn't work out. Sometimes because the difference on the valuation, sometimes maybe the in, in the end becoming the different uh, directions becoming different. Do does Mr. Lee feel, or or do you feel that in the end he saw the future clearer than maybe the people who wanted to purchase the asset, and that he never could. He his belief in himself and in the future was so strong that there was never going to be an offer that he could accept. He never he never could let somebody adopt his baby. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a, uh, as you said, it's a, it's a, it's real. It's a, like a baby. We we created and we developed this uh, this baby, and so we would not be easy to give it up. So if we want if we think we have a chance to make it bigger, make it stronger without being bought by somebody else, we would like to do that. That is all of the GangFin episode I'm going to include here. If you would like to hear it in its entirety, it is episode 25, and it is well worth a listen and extremely nostalgic for me. The emotions of having the son-in-law of Pinochet in charge of the most important deposit of lithium and also having them non-complying according with the, what was uh, established in the previous government, was, which was a center-right government, not complying with the regulation, not complying with the contract, not complying with the environmental regulation. This is an explosive combination. That is the voice of Dr. Eduardo Betran, the former executive VP of Corfo, the Chilean regulatory body that owns the lithium reserves in the Atacama and leases them out to both Abelmarl and SQM. Dr. Betran talks about both companies and his relationships I only took a small segment of the almost two-hour podcast. If it piques your interest, I would urge you to go back and listen to the entire episode, which I will put up on globallithium.net over the weekend. It's still out there on the old website, and you can get it through Apple, but it, it was so large at the time 
that the old lithium podcast uh, website couldn't hold it in one uh, download, so we had to cut it up into two episodes. You're also going to hear references to Tanchi. Some of you who are new to the industry may not uh, be aware that during the time the new agreements with Albemarle and SQM were being negotiated, Tanchi made an attempt to take control of SQM. And that's a very interesting part of the story. But to fully understand the interplay, you would have to uh, listen to the entire episode. And this was in what time frame that you decided and started negotiating with Abomaro? 2016, mid-2016, and, and, and we negotiated yeah. for half a year. Uh, John Mitchell and Stefan Nelgeta, the negotiation. Uh, I think John was an extraordinary uh, business guy, uh, very uh, straight, clear, tough negotiator. Tough Shout negotiator. out to John Mitchell. Uh, <laughs> John Mitchell, <laughs> tough negotiator. Uh, but when we have a handshake, there was an agreement. Okay? Which is not the situation today with Albe Marley. Correct. Then that's the, well, that was the whole the, the, the stress. My lawyer that helped me on, the, our external lawyer uh, that, that helped us on uh, uh, Albemar negotiation and then in the negotiation with SQM, always said to me that I have a kind of bipolar situation. Because that's I a was, good way to frame it. <laughs> on the one hand, I, I have all this vision that this could change the world and could change Chile dramatically. Uh, but at the same time, I was being very tough in the, in the negotiations with SQM. Probably very few understood that, that the political economy of this was very complex. And I have to accomplish many th things simultaneously in order to make politically feasible an agreement. I was clear that, that the arbitrator will not concede us the uh, termination of the contract from 2015. That was clear. Then the only possibility of solving the problem is to have a mutual agreement. Then we decide that on the royalty, we start first with Alve Marle and we set the floor. When you are in these positions, regardless of what you believe, you have to create a formula that will create the political consensus on this. Something else happened in 2016. Something that was very dramatic for Chile. We found out, everybody found out, that there was... Uh, uh, a record of illegal financing of politics. And the king of that was Julio Ponce Leroux. Then Julio Ponce Leroux, through Sokimich, financed almost all the political spectrum. Almost all. That's why I understood then 
I was puzzled because I was very harsh on 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 Sokimich and Julio Ponceleru. I was puzzled why I didn't got the unanimous support of congressmen, of the political parties. They were quiet. I felt that I was alone fighting this, speaking loudly to the press. Tweeting loudly. Tweeting <laughs> loudly. And nobody, you know, almost nobody. And now I understood. I understood what was going on. Most of the political parties, most of the candidates, most of the presidential candidates have received money from Julio Ponce de Legal or illegally? Legally or illegally? Then they have a roof, a glass roof, almost everybody. Well, but I am very independent. I have to do the better for the sake of the country. I did receive pressures. Yeah, I was gonna, that was going to be my I, question. I, I, is, I in this receive. environment, in the role you're in, then how did those pressures manifest themselves? Different people, never inside the government, let me tell you. Never. Never a war inside the government. But from external sources, yeah. I, people said, well, solve this situation, Eduardo. What are you doing? Solve this. It's time you to solve this. When the Chinese came, Tianqi, to try to buy the control of SQM, SQM Potash, sorry, uh, Pampa, hired Itaú, Argentina, and they pick uh, Tianqi. Tianqi offered a premium of 40% over market price, okay? Then I said, wow, this guy is going to sell his illegal control of the company with a 40% premium. And we are the owners of this property. And this is illegal because the law to protect minority shareholders is very clear. If you sell control, you have to offer the same conditions to all the shareholders. And these guys are buying just a fraction of the company, 30-something, and, and are getting the control. Outrageous. Then I decided to talk to the regulators. They were not behind my thought. And even they said to me that there was another situation with a company that were sold where they, they sold a minority shareholder, a minority stake, they transferred control, and they allowed that not to do an OPA, a public offering. I said, nonsense. That's wrong. That's illegal. Then I said, I have no, pos I have no possibilities with the regulation. Then I will use politics, because at the end, Sokimich, sorry, Tianqi made an offer with conditions. One, one of the conditions was to solve the, the, the issue with Corfo. We never would have accepted to negotiate with the SQM 
to allow uh, uh, TNT to do an illegal taking over. An interesting part of the yeah, story. Yeah, no, it's, it is. <laughs> In October 2017, the arbitral call us again for negotiation. And, and there I was really in a big problem because, and, and Pampa also, because I was trying to take away from them the control. This will weaken them vis-a-vis an eventual Tianqi takeover of Potache stake. Then I have really a trade-off there. But I knew that politically there is just one way out. Yeah, the guy have to lose control. They have to give up the control. Then when we sit with Gilesasti in October, I was strong on this, and they decided not to agree. It was already clear that Piñera will be the new president, and they, they said to themselves, and they receive also some people link to the Udi party, the more right wing, saying, wait, don't negotiate with Vitran, negotiate with us. And uh, the game was over. That really, at the end of October 2017, I believe that this, the game was over. And I, wo- I, was n- I, I wouldn't be able to solve the SQM problem. And something very unexpected happened that this was solved. And? <laughs> <laughs> but you, you follow the yeah, sequence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really, I, I was devastated because I thought that for the sake of the world, because lithium was going to the sky at the time, then we had many automotive companies saying, with this uncertainty, we're not going to do the move to electromobility. It's too uncertain. Uh, it's obvious that the Chinese were wanted to take in over, and in order to monopolize lithium and cobalt, in order to have the domination of electromobility, that was another source of uncertainty for European companies, especially for European companies. Then we have a strategy. We said publicly what were the conditions. Many people was co-opted in the political arena because of the legal financing, financing of politics. Then we say, what can we do? These are the conditions. You have to fulfill these conditions. As suddenly, I start receiving message from the new government, the new coming government, saying, Eduardo, you have to solve it because we won't be able. We have no possibility. Politically, it will be impossible. I said to these powerful people, oh, good. You could help me. These are the conditions are public. They could come here whenever they want. But they should come here saying, I agree to these conditions. And they came after the election, just the next day. The next day after the election, they came. And they came and they said, we agree to your conditions. Then 
was not myself the one that did this alone. Probably they received a message from people very close to Piñera that with Piñera, will, the Piñera will not be able to have an agreement. And then in 2022, the game is over. Then the value of your stake is nil. Then you better take the conditions of it, right? That's the game. That's the story. And I was happy because they met that were conditions. I think everybody was a little surprised. This is new, uh, huh? Yeah. Nobody knows this yeah, part of the yeah, story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that hopefully the listeners have the patience to. I mean, there's a lot of details in here, and this is a very complicated story. Interesting. It's very interesting. Maybe we and very write a book. Yeah. <laughs> Let me give you another piece of the story on Alve Marle. In 2016, the Energy Commission and Corfo came to the conclusion at that time that the Albemarle price were very, very low compared with the competitor. We, we cannot understand that. We said that to them. They entered into all kinds of explanations that I, ne <laughs> I never believed. We look for advice, uh, an expert that works in the, in the Inter-American Development Bank on transfer price. And they advise us. Then they said, okay, the OECD have a scheme to regulate these situations where they have to open the information, the accounting of the related companies they are selling to. Public company in the U.S. is playing games with the respectable country like Chile. They are selling to third parties at higher price because when I wrote the contract for Albemarle, I, I, was, I took two precautions, two. One is that Corfo uh, royalty will be based on the, on the price to non-related parties, number one. And we compare both, and there was a 25% difference. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, 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 Even the third-party sales are still <laughs> mysteriously... Yeah, but still, but still, yeah, it's, it's much higher than yeah. the internal price, yeah. okay? I could tell you that at some point, they wanted to increase the quota because they said they discovered a new technology. Yes, they will allow them to go to 85% recovery. Which currently, what are they at? Uh, and was at 51, and the, the agreement was negotiated at 60 Okay, they said no, 80, 85%. Okay, and they came here. When they came with their uh, 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 lawyer, Terry, the lawyer said, uh, you know, we want to uh, change the contract because this is ambiguous. The special producers that should receive uh, our uh, uh, lithium at FOB price, uh, the preferential FOB price, uh, we should not consider uh, uh, export parity price, the internal selling to Albemarle England, uh, U.S. should not be considered. Then the guy wanted to leave that in written, and 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 this as part of the negotiation of increasing the quota. I stopped the meeting. John Mitchell was there. I stopped the meeting. And I canceled the negotiation. And I said to them, you are playing with fire. 
because in our agreement, you were supposed to negotiate in good faith with the Internal Revenue Service to have an agreement on transfer price. And you propose a nonsense. You propose a cost plus scheme where we are the lowest cost producer of the world. This is a joke. You are playing games with the Chilean government. The, and now, now you want to make us believe that it's legal to sell at below market price to your related party uh, uh, and to put that in a contract. You are nonsense. Then buy. And we stop the negotiation. At the end of 2017, they came back saying, okay, we keep the contract as it is. The lowest FOB price, no changes, but we want the expansion of the quota. Good, no problem. The, the quota, even for me, doesn't make sense. Then let's expand the quota. But the, to be clear, the FOB included what they shipped to of course, North Carolina. Of course, uh, of yeah. course. Then what happened with them? When they negotiated originally in 2016, they didn't realize that the clause of the most favorable nation for the value added will kill his strategy of underpricing. But I did that on purpose because I knew that they were selling below market price. I didn't have all the trust that the Internal Revenue Service will have the technical expertise to solve the issue. Then I put an incentive in the contract because when they sell to a third party, the price differential, you know, the seven compared with the 12, the $5,000, they lost the whole thing, the $5,000. But instead, when they are selling to their related company, they are saving the taxes. Then the incentive for them is to adjust the price. They didn't do that. Then in May the, this year, they came to Corfo proposing that now on, they want to sell the whole lithium to North Carolina <laughs> and stop selling to third parties and then that they will give a preferential status to the 25%, but, and then we will give a discount. But this discount had to be paid by Corfo, deducting that from the royalty. That's outrageous. Well, especially, is, especially uh, since the, their ability to utilize the product in North Carolina is very small. Yes. They have now a conflict, which is a legal battle. Then they, ha they have two fronts. Mr. Luke, you have two fronts open in Chile. You want one front because you are under investigation of doing a severe uh, breach of the tax law. And in, the, in this uh, uh, investigation from Corfo, when I was in Corfo, we help the technical part to the Internal Revenue Service. Then you and the shareholders and the board members should know that your behavior have you under investigation in Chile and in Australia for the same reason, transfer price. Also with Internal Revenue Service of Australia. Second, 
what was supposed to be your partner, the owner of the of the of the resource, which is Corfo, have no option but to fight you legally because you are not fulfilling the contracts. You know, uh, and that's a very complex situation. You have put your company in in, in Chile. Just a shout out to the U.S. IRS and the Western Australian tax authorities. If if you need any help or clarity on how pricing works, I'd be happy to uh, provide support uh, <laughs> on a pro bono basis. Ken Brinsden, who is the CEO of Pilbara, has been a great friend of the podcast. He's been on three times. The last time was in August of 2020, which was still a very trying time in the market and for the company. However, we both thought that we might be at the bottom of spodumene pricing. And as it turns out, uh, we weren't too far off. Just a few months after we recorded this episode, Pilbara was able to acquire the operations of Altura, their neighbor, which was a very positive step in speeding up the turnaround in the spodumene market. I hope to catch up with Ken again soon, given all the positive news on the spodumene side that probably happened faster than any of us thought. Yeah, my sense is that we've probably seen the bottom in in respect of demand weakness. We've guided to increased sales this quarter based on the premise that we've, we've had um, you know, really positive interaction with the customers, especially in the last couple of months. And I think that speaks to confidence, you know, in the supply chain, uh, the, the ability of the, you know, new energy vehicle industry to come out of the back of COVID, well, arguably even in better shape as a function of people rethinking, you know, their strategies to rebuild economies and, you know, obviously Europe's a, a big part of that. Uh, but also in China as well, you know, the, 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 the decision to not with further withdraw central government uh, subsidy support and also to push a bit of policy and, and subsidy uh, support to the, to the provinces, I think is also giving the industry confidence in China. The, the elephant in the room is the, is the idea that somehow people can magically source lithium chemicals, you know, ex-China. And, uh, of course, the answer is, well, no. I mean, at least not yet. So a lot of sourcing is going to happen through the China supply chain. And and post the COVID freeze, my, my sense is that that's starting to happen again. And it's giving cost, our customers you know, more confidence about the direction in the market. Yeah, I, I think that we're just in a lull here that is actually just exacerbating the problem. Let me Let me ask you about your partners, because... That, I think that's one of the things that I've always said about what you've done is kind of have a blue chip suite of partners with Gangfen, CATL now, POSCO. You had General Lithium early on and, and you know, some others. So your partners participate at various levels of supply chain. And, and how does that help you when you interact? I mean, you seem to have more than some of the other newcomers very deep and knowledgeable partners. Can you talk a little bit about how that helps you see the market and, and have confidence in where you're going? Yeah, that, that's been very deliberate in, in the build out of the customer suite with, with Pilbara. 
I was lucky enough in the early days to learn from, from the Lithium Raj and Anne Sheth about who were the most important people in the lithium ion battery supply chain uh, at the front end. So, you know, obviously with the focus being on the chemical conversion industry initially. And the logic in that is that you want to target the people that have the deep experience their own operating expertise and ability to, to integrate into the lithium ion supply chain where the quality paradigm is higher than the historical norm for the lithium industry generally. And, um, and of course, that's also where the bulk of the demand is coming from. So that was, that was deliberate. And then in the period since we've sort of been testing the supply chain further downstream, whether it be the, the, um, the batteries or cathode materials batteries or even, or even cars via the relationship with Great Wall. I, yeah, it's true, Joe. It helps because our interaction with those guys is giving us a sense of the direction in the market. And then uh, CATL, whilst that's been crystallised, you know, just in the last, well, in the last 12 months, we've, we've known them for a long time, you know, almost going back to the beginning. And they're helping us in respect of not even just the China market because they're also you know, pretty deeply integrated with you know, global participants in the industry and, and Europe being an important part of that. So, so they do share uh, some useful snippets with us. And, uh, and actually, Joe, to be honest, we also just really enjoy those relationships. They, you know, I think we've found you know, sort of common ground with people that we can happily work with now, now that doesn't mean it's always perfect. I'm not going to sort of, you know, sort of gild the lily too much because it has been a tough time in the market. But there's a long game to be played here, one that, that's playing out, well, probably over multiple decades and certainly in respect of our mine because it's a long-lived mine. So whilst there's been a hiccup, there's been a bump in the road and it's been a tough 12 to 18 months, recognition that, that in the end, the value in the relationship is worth more than the pain you might have experienced over a 12 or 18 month period. I, I think, you know, we've been able to guide the company through that period. Well, I'm not going to suggest it's been easy, but we've come, we've come out of that with a really solid operating platform. We've got a, a suite of customers that we both enjoy working with and are very capable people. Uh, and I've no doubt that we can continue to grow with them. And the, as I said, the operating platform is now poised for, we're ready to pounce as it, as the case might be, uh, Joe, as the market continues to improve. So, so yeah, whilst a tough time, I think we're all the better for it. Well, each, each time you've been on the podcast, uh, the topic of your company culture comes up. Changing gears a little bit, I'd like to ask you about the challenges. Things looked a lot better market-wise when we first started talking. And now you've had to lead a young team through challenging market and COVID. So you want to talk a little bit about how that's played out with your culture and some of the lessons that, that have been learned. Yeah, it's been a funny time, Joe, and... and not only is it uh, is it COVID or or weak demand conditions, uh, pricing impacts, but we also had a homicide, which which you know I've got to say, if I thought about what would happen in my mining career, that, that was not that was not on the list. But again, the the question of of culture is just such an important dynamic in in industry. 
and we've been quite deliberate as to what what we've done to try and invest in in the culture in the company and to foster it in the direction that ultimately we want it to go and as a as a firm we want it to go and i'm i'm really happy with how that's developed we've been through a bit of pain and there's been some unusual things happen at site but i've no doubt that we've we've basically come through that a stronger organisation. We're not having any trouble recruiting key people to the company. And I would like to think that's because we we have a brand and a a reputation in the industry, uh, especially here in WA, uh, that people value. And uh, and it's precious. You can't take it for granted. And you don't want to let it slide because ultimately... It's like the it's like the fabric and the glue that keeps the keeps the company together. And um, I'd like to think that 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 works for us. It doesn't mean we're perfect, Joe. Far from that. I don't want to give you that impression either. But it is something that we work hard on. And if we you know if we make mistakes, we do our best to acknowledge them and uh, talk it through and let people know what we're doing to to make things right and or get better. So, so yeah, tough times, forged in the fire, all that sort of stuff, Joe. You know, I, I'm pretty happy with, with where we're at and albeit acknowledging that it's been a tough time in the market, tough time for shareholders. Pleased to say that, that there's been a bit of a bounce in the market and a bit more interest coming back into lithium equities as people test whether, whether we're at the bottom. Yeah, so that, that aspect is pleasing as well and hopefully our shareholders ultimately you know rewarded for for their efforts and hanging in there well i guess part of the culture and we we talked about this before was uh you had a very deliberate social media strategy and and from my perspective from what i do i think of the lithium companies you've certainly been the most successful on getting the message out on social media how do you see the the regionalization and the supply chain diversity rhetoric going from your perspective. Now that there's a big build out plan for Europe and Europe lacks the kind of resources that WA has, how, how do you see your future in light of the changing global situation that when you bring in the European OEMs, when you bring in uh, others who will build out capacity, it's, it's EVs were more or less a China a China business in Tesla for quite a while. And, and that's changing rapidly. Yeah. You know, whilst the Western world was talking about alternate supply chains, China built out capacity. Exactly. You know, and I think, yeah, I like the Western world sort of saying, well, well, we need the alternate supply chain. And, and that's a reality that the Western world is now faced with. However, I'm, I'm also pleased to say that the Western world now seems to be, uh, they're backing up the rhetoric with more effort. And there are some investments underway that will have the effect of further diversifying the supply chain. So the plant's been constructed here in Western Australia by, uh, by TNG and, and Albemarle. Our own efforts with, with POSCO in South Korea and inquiry emerging from Europe and actually from the supply, And actually, it should have been pursued earlier. But be that as it may, at least now, uh, there's, there's serious conversations underway that can make that happen. What does it mean for Pilgrim Minerals? Well, I think the reality is that because we have such a competitive position in the, the cost of spodumene on a ship, the fact that the ship might go to North Asia or to Europe 
or the US means that we still have a very competitive position that in respect of what, what ultimately is produced in hydroxide. And that's because the cost of shipping in the scheme of things is a relatively small cost in comparison to the total cost of the hydroxide as produced. With that as a backdrop, I would just simply say that the, the Pilbara region as a competitive location for the supply of spodumene all the way around the world, I think is sound. You know, that, that model is, is likely to evolve over time. And on the flip side, if you're thinking about chemical facilities, and in Europe, especially referring to the direct conversion of spodumene to hydroxide, it makes perfect sense to have the plant on the doorstep of the industry for all the reasons that, you know, that ultimately help in, in the, you know, lowering the cost of logistics, the, the quality of the product that's ultimately delivered to the gate, uh, the, the idea that some locations in Europe are going to have natural competitive advantages for the, the chemical activity in the form of lower cost of reagents or power or even, you know, governments that are genuinely incentivising the creation of a new industry. So I think with, with all of that as a backdrop, it seems inevitable to me that that model um, will unfold. And we like the idea of participating in that model because ultimately further diversity in the sales from our business also makes sense. Dr. Yuan Gao is a longtime friend and former coworker who's been on the podcast multiple times. Uh, the last time was in 2020. We uh, talked about some new regulations that had been announced that would impact LFP. And then we talk about something that you hear a lot on the podcast is my feeling that overall the industry tends to gravitate towards balance. In this case, we talk about positive news for LFP, but Dr. Gao also makes the case that high nickel cathodes still have a very bright future. We close with a discussion on the qualification process that probably everybody that follows lithium should be aware of. The next few years, uh, the market share of LLP will go up because of this, especially in China. But I'm not ready to say I, it's the death sentence to 811. Um, like it, this particular chemistry or the high nickel chemistry will have its place. And people will develop thermal management solution to uh, to to get over this hurdle, given enough time. I think you and I have lived through enough battery history where years ago they said LCO would be dead by 2000. Right. And then four years ago they said LFP would be dead because high nickel would come in and displace it. And it, it just seems to me like the industry almost has a bias for balance and that all these cathodes have a place. And, and I think we talked about this last time when you were on the podcast, but it, it does just seem that uh, the commentary tends to rush to one extreme, but the reality tends to hmm. try to gravitate back to balance. Exactly. Uh, battery application is about trade-offs. So when you have a, uh, so you are an engineer to design a battery or battery pack, you look at your, your customers, you have, always have to make trade-off decisions. 
so far, we don't see one chemistry that's the best for every measure. So you sort of have to find one chemistry that's the best for that particular application. That has been uh, going on for decades uh, in the battery space. All right. Well, that's, I mean, I really appreciate getting your perspective. I, I did kind of expect to hear the rush towards, well, this is, means LFP will dominate. And, and I tend to just always think that the extreme story is not the right story. And that uh, at the end of the day, this is good in the short term for LFP, as you said, but longer term, Nickel's, high nickel still got a really great future outside of China and likely will have a future inside of China. It's probably a timing difference. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, well, let me first say uh, high nickel chemistry definitely has an advantage for high energy density. Or uh, I think it will be the uh, chemistry of a choice where you need a high energy density. Also, people don't pay a lot of attention to this, is that it does require higher degree of a manufacturing excellence. Basically, it has a lower tolerance. So if you, uh, where you have a higher stand manufacturing standard, I think you can benefit from high nickel chemistry better. Where LLP, it's more forgiving. It gives you the best value as uh, so exemplified by uh, some, uh, I think uh, there's a Reuters uh, report coming out yesterday, uh, CTP uh, designed by one Chinese manufacturer with this chemistry for uh, long, rent, long drive rent cars. And also uh, another uh, Chinese uh, manufacturer announced back at the beginning of the year about the blade battery, the old FLP chemistry. So it does a certain application. I think FLP would be the logical choice where at some other application, high nickel chemistry. So I, I, I just, uh, it's very hard for me to agree. I, one day people will say FLP is that. The other day, and people will say 811 is that. No, 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 no. They all have their own place. Yeah, I guess in summary, I would call this new legislation a tailwind for the blade and the CTP technologies. But exactly. it's, not, it's probably not a, um, it's certainly no guarantee. They, they still have to perform. There's still manufacturing issues to overcome. But it's, it's certainly good for LFP no matter what, what form it takes. Right, right. And also at the end of the day, as consumers, the market will make the decision. That's right. The market always does. Last time uh, when, when you were on the podcast in Santiago, one topic that we only surface touched on was, was qualification in battery raw materials, but particularly lithium. And, and if you could just generically kind of take me through your thoughts on that, how the process works and, and how long it takes, because that's, uh, that's an issue that keeps coming up. And as new people get interested in the field and they hear about it, uh, it's just uh, good to have kind of a refresher on the qualification uh, process. And then I probably have one follow-up on that. Oh yeah. Um, for on the uh, level of a cast, let, 
Let's use the example of a castle, but I think it applies to anode and separator other components as well. So it, it, uh, it is a very stringent uh, qualification process. It goes in iterations. You, uh, you, start, you start from small samples. People look at the fundamentals of chemistry. Then it, and everything's good. You're bumped up to the kilogram level. And then they make a prototype cells. And then if you pass that, you bump up to multiple tonnage levels. So it's for trial runs. And, and if you pass that, and then they, 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 they have a trial orders to see your consistency. Because, yeah, you, you might be able to pass all the tests, but if your floor manufacturing man, uh, management system is not there, and you will encounter consistency problem, then you'll fail again. So, so it's a step-by-step step, step process. Take... In the old days, when you and I were working for FMC, it was very long. It's like uh, two years. But then the industry moved faster. Um, the qualification, because the product design cycle get compressed. This qualification uh, cycle tend to be compressed within a year. Uh, I think uh, 10 or 20 years ago, it used to be two years. Then you got compressed to under a year. If you every step you you pass, however, if you uh, you fail some steps, you go instead of one or two iterations, you get into three or four iterations. This process can be longer, but it's not forever because if if your competitor get qualified, you'll fail several more times. The door get closed on you. So either you qualify in a year or after couple, uh, maybe a little more, a year and a half or something, you still cannot pass certain gate. And then you, you, you drop out. From your perspective, it, it, does the, you've seen times in the last four or five years when, when lithium has been in very short supply and people to get lithium raw materials might have to change suppliers. Mm -hmm. And my perspective is that at the very top level, the top tier one battery and cathode producers really don't, aren't willing to make a substitution, but maybe on the lower end, the tier two or the lower quality, lower spec batteries that they, they might be a little less rigorous about what qualification entails. Is no, that, I, you believe, yeah. do you agree with that or? No, I've seen that. I've seen that. Uh... It's, uh, I, I don't call it uh, normal practice. It's uh, out of a desperation. But I agree with you. It tend to be a lower tier uh, manufacturers. Uh, it tend to be uh, smaller operations. So if you're faced with a choice, you either shut down your factory or take a chance on something. They sometimes they do that. I'm not uh, in favor because you basically, you increase the risk down the road. But some people, out of a desperation, they might do that. Even higher tier manufacturer, they might do, uh, they might take additive gas, they sign off on some exceptions. They don't, so, which means, as soon as supply return to normal, they will return to their normal protocol. That's exception, that's a not new procedure. It's not like, oh, uh, our new, uh, our qualification process has changed. They don't do that. They just have a higher authority. It's a very 
like a two levels higher, some guy will sign off on some exception, a case by case. And finally, also an episode from last summer, although Nano One was one of the first 10 guests we had. So Dan Blondahl has been on multiple times. This time he was joined by Stephen Campbell to talk about some of their more recent developments at the time. Anyone who follows me on social media knows that uh, I am very bullish on the potential Nano One's technology has for bringing about change in the battery supply chain. Do you want us to unpack that for your listeners? Because I, I do want you to unpack it. This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is sponsored by Zolandes, a Brinefield services company providing real-time actionable data. Zolandes recently saved a major lithium brine producer up to 50% in their drilling costs and increased brine well production rates by as much as 40%. Find out more at zolandes.com. And we're live. Welcome to another edition of the Global Lithium Podcast. My guests today are Dan Blondell, the CEO and man with one tweet from Nano One, and Dr. Stephen Campbell. Welcome, gentlemen. Tell us about this momentous single malt cathode announcement you made this morning. That's a play on words to the audience. It's actually not single malt, it's single pot. But okay, gentlemen, take it away. What we announced this morning is um, some of the development work that we've done, which has been really exciting. Nano One's technology for making high nickel cathode materials is what we call our one pot process, which is radically different in the, in the chemistry from the traditional, what we call the conventional way of doing it, in that we add everything into the one pot, the nickel, the manganese, the cobalt, the lithium, and uh, additives that form dopants and coatings all go into the one reactor to produce one precursor. Um, so, there's, so we're able to, when it comes out of the furnace, it comes out where each individual crystal of 811 is individually coated in a protective coating that, in, that imparts much greater durability than the uncoated material. So this durability means we get better cycle life and less degradation. And the, the material we get has a unique morphology in this sense because conventionally you make a, a a precursor, which is a hydroxide precursor, which is a, a large, dense crystalline sphere. And then you mix that with ground up lithium hydroxide powder and you fire it so the lithium soaks into it. And then you have to take it out of the furnace and then you have to put a coating on the outside. So you disperse the coating material on the outside and then you generally refire it again to make the crystalline coating on the outside. So there's a lot of different firing steps. We put everything in one reactor so there's just one firing and it comes out of that kiln, it cools down already coated. So it's much, much more durable. Is it fair to say then, and this harkens back to both your original podcast and a couple of the ones I've done with Dr. Gao, when you, you talk about the, the structure of the cathode and the, and the tunnels that the ions go through, that because your process yields a, a more stable structure. You don't have the level of side reactions that create the degradation and close off the tunnels. Is that 
too simple or? It's, well, it's, it's, you're almost there, I think. The, the conventional way of making it is you make like a, an M&M. You sugarcoat the outside of the chocolate, okay? But then if you imagine, as you put lithium in and out through these tunnels, the chocolate expands and contracts. And it tends, because it expands in all the directions, it tends to fracture the coating on the outside. And that's the electrolyte in, so you lose the coating. You lose the integrity of the coating. When you have each individual um, crystal, um, each coated, the whole agglomerate can expand and contract, but it doesn't affect the coating. It doesn't damage the coating. If, it, if the particles come apart and allow electrolyte in, it doesn't matter because all the surfaces are, are always coated. And this is the difference between the conventional coating, which coats the secondary particle, and our process, which coats the individual nanocrystals. So your M&Ms don't crack, is basically what you're saying. They, they are, if, you, if you like, our M&Ms are really, really small. Yeah. And so you end up with, with a big particle made up of little M&Ms, and they don't crack. What kind of life extension can that give you? Have you been able to get clarity on that? Or if we're talking we about... Some, we have some initial results. It's very recently got some initial results, which is the basis of the news release that went out this morning, where we can, we've compared our uncoated material with our coated material. And after over 100 cycles, it degraded 4%, and the uncoated material faded 17%. So that's like a four times greater longevity but that's only uh, recent results we have in the lab and we're, we're proceeding with more a much bigger testing with scaling up the process so that we can start doing some really big pouch cell work to to understand it but the initial results are very encouraging so what else is happening guys there's certainly uh, uh there's certainly lots of um kind of noise right now and excitement about uh you know about Partly what we announced today is uh, this idea of longer lasting million mile batteries and all kinds of uh, information about uh, wrapped into all of that is LFP and NMC and single crystals. And, and you know, we've had, uh, we've had a number of announcements recently about our LFP, about our single crystal, about this kind of notion of million mile batteries. It's all, it's all playing very kind of heavily into our space. And, and we're, we're quite well positioned because we've, we've got technology to address, you know, each one of these uh, each one of these um, sort of verticals that we're, we're seeing and strategic materials. Well, that's the other area I wanted to get into, or one of the other areas I wanted to get into is Nano One really, you have um, a play in high nickel, you have a play in LFP. So it, it's just a matter of, of how things develop. And the way I've always viewed it is you're going to have a you have horses for courses and you're going to have a balance on where, where high nickel goes and where LFP is strong. How do you see your next couple of years playing out? Where are you going to focus? And I just don't want to create the impression that you are in one camp or the other when my understanding is you can play in either the, the carbonate side of the house or the hydroxide side of the house, if you want to view it that way, or the, the, the nickel cathodes or LFB. Yeah, you know what, Joe, we have, we actually have three, three kind of uh, strategic materials we're pursuing, the LFP, uh, the, the high nickel NMC, and also what we call our high voltage spinel, which is uh, predominantly a manganese based uh, uh, material with, with a nickel doping that, that runs at very high voltage. Each one of them has, has pros and cons. Um, they have, each one of them has have properties that are beneficial to certain applications. Um, we don't know uh, ultimately which one's gonna kind of, uh, 
well, there's going to be a winner. Um, there's going to be a there's going to be a continuum of these materials, and I think it's important that we're we're positioning our technology to be able to do any one of these things. The fact that we can use lithium carbonate as feedstock for uh, for the high nickel materials is, is quite is very unique, um, and I think uh, advantageous. Um, LFP, uh, you know, its benefits have traditionally been low cost, safe, long lasting. But if you start looking at some of the innovations now coming out of CATL and, and, uh, and BYD, uh, they're starting to be able to pack more of it uh, between the cells. Uh, they're taking advantage of the thermal stability properties of LFP and they're packing, they're making their cells, their, their, their cells and their battery packs much denser, which means they're going to be launching four, five, 600 kilometer range cars powered by LFP. So that's a kind of a game changer as far as I can see. Uh, that's a, That could really change the, the balance. All of a sudden, LFP is no longer a 150. 50 kilometer range car or, or just a bus material or just a material for for the grid storage it actually starts to address the long range luxury electric vehicle market as well and and we've always felt that was coming we knew it was there we took a bet on it um, it doesn't mean we're abandoning uh, nmc in favor of that uh, we we believe they have their strengths and weaknesses and, and uh, we'll sort of continue to continue to work on all of these things because they they all have uh, they will all have a place in the market in the future I think I would be remiss if I did not include a segment from the podcast that my family appeared on during a lithium conference in Las Vegas in uh, 2018. It was a very fun episode. Chris Berry co-hosted it. So you'll hear from Chris in this again. So I don't know how many times he's been on the podcast now because he did episode 100 and now he's on 100 part two in any case i thank my family for all the help they've given me in doing the podcast and with global lithium and with that the lowry family uh, i remember joe telling me that we were moving to japan we had talked about it would it be the right thing for a family and when the decision was made and actually prior to it i don't like to fly so i said to joe what I'd like you to do is go over to Japan, pick out where we're going to live. And for those three years that we're going to be in Japan, I'm not coming back to the United States. I won't complain about the house. Um, and I don't ask me to travel anyplace else. Yeah, that um, didn't work out. So how did, how did that work out? <laughs> I ended up loving traveling all over the place. And instead of just three years, we were 11 years in Asia, five and a half in Japan, five and a half in China. But Erin can probably tell from her standpoint, her memory of what happened when she was told we were moving. Well, there were two iterations of what had happened. First, when I was nine, I had gone to Japan with just my dad. So I had context of what it was like to be in Japan as a nine-year-old kid who was getting all the, the great treatment, which my dad can you still. You talk about swag. <laughs> you, you tell him what happened. Um. For those of you who are unfamiliar, a big part of Japanese culture is gift giving. And I figured out very early on that if I pointed out something I liked, magically someone would buy it for me. So I think I, I used this con about three times. And the last time I did it, all of a sudden my dad comes up behind me and goes, I know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I promptly stopped. But um, so my memory first was it had only been a few months after we had gone on our trip that I remember being asked, I was putting something in the microwave in the kitchen, and I remember my dad going, what would you think about living in Japan? And I was 9 or 10, and 
kind of whatever intuition I had at that age starts going off like, that's a weird question. Just moved. Yeah, you were in fifth grade. Yeah. So I was in second grade. And I think, again, just, <laughs> just sort of sat there and was like, makes sense. <laughs> this is happening. I also didn't have a concept of countries really. at the, I knew my dad traveled, but I was seven. So I didn't really totally understand what that meant. So I remember thinking Japan sounded like Peter Pan, and that's I just would call it Peter Pan in my head for a long. I was like, oh, cool, we're like going to Peter Pan. It's gonna be gonna be great, Neverland. Your SAT scores were very high, but it sounded like there's no correlation between your thought process and your SAT scores. I was I was seven. When this was sprung on me. The only time that I can remember, this wasn't super embarrassing because only I knew what was happening. Our dad traveled a lot, was jet lagged relatively frequently, and he somehow very impressively always made it to all of our things. So basketball games, soccer games, plays. And I have one distinct memory of being in a play. To his credit, I think it was the second or third time he had seen the show. My parents came to every night of a show. And all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of a scene, and I hear this snore. And I'm like, that is my dad. Yeah. Like, unmistakably, that is my father. Well, I, I opened my me. eyes. I got a jerk, and she was looking right at me. I think that was like the litmus test, though, in high school theater for the whole cast was, is Mr. Lowry awake? Because it must be good if he's awake. <laughs> but he was there. Yeah. I had a meeting with my boss's boss who came to Charlotte for the sole reason to tell me if I didn't go to China, I had no future. And I said, I got no future anyway. So (laughs) I walked out of that meeting and they had a new HR guy. Uh, His name was Tom. Tom, if you're listening, I'm not going to say your last name, but you know who you are. He walks up to me and he says, my job is to get you to go to China. And I looked at Tom in the eye and said, good bleep luck. (laughs) When we left, we were still coming home. When we got back to Japan, we had a little family meeting, and my two lovely daughters said something to the effect that, you say it, Eric. Well, I was a junior in high school, so my first – well, I was going to be. I was a sophomore when this was happening, so I had two more years of high school left. And the school that I was going to in Japan had a dorm. So my first pitch was, can I stay in the dorm, whatever you guys do? And they said, no. And then – To me, so uh, for context, the school we went to in Japan was called Canadian Academy. There was the school that we would be going to if we went to Shanghai called Shanghai American School, and those two schools played in the same league known as APAC. So I knew that if I went to China, we would get to still see my old friends. I would be playing against them in basketball and soccer. It also was a quick flight. I knew that if we moved back to the States, the odds of me getting to come back to Japan were slim to none. So to me, China was also much more similar to the lifestyle I had grown accustomed to, where going back to America was going to mean complete culture shock. We had not been around Americans all the time since I was 10, and at this point I was 16. Well, Kayla, were you staring blankly off into space? or? <laughs> I think we liked living in Asia and like, I don't know, I it, it felt like it would be less of a transition to go from Japan to China, but that proved to be incorrect. For me, at least, the transition to Shanghai was really brutal. Um, she was 13, mind you. 
Yeah, so a lot of teen hormones going around the school. And if I see a pack of 13-year-old girls, I will cross the street. <laughs> I, like, I think they could run the, the world if they decided to come together. Like if Justin Bieber told them all to congregate and like do whatever he wanted, they would make it happen. I always have told people, yeah, my dad works in the lithium industry, like batteries and antidepressants. Like that is my my line <laughs> um, because it's such a strange thing to to say. You're like, yeah, my dad's Mr. Lithium. Ha ha. You can Google him. And then sometimes they will Google him and they're like, oh, you're not joking. I'm like, yeah, he is an expert, an element on the periodic table. I did <laughs> The lightest metal on the table of elements. Yeah, so um, I had a theory that I'm being here doesn't really change the theory. I think it's still happening. I do think my dad's in the CIA. Um, there's a lot of reasons and evidence to think this um, from the amount he traveled, from the way, I mean, his social media presence has really changed, I would say, over the past three years. But it used to be exclusively shots of his back. He wouldn't, <laughs> in dramatic yeah. poses. In yeah. dramatic, he wouldn't show his face, like, online. So I thought that kind of, like, went into, like, his CIA identity. It was like, it makes sense. Like, you can't show yourself. All of my friends are terrified of him. Kaylin's friends and my ha- friends have very different relationships okay. to my dad. And for context, again... A lot of my friends are um, taller and larger than my father, and yet every single time one of my guy friends especially has met my dad and then my fiancé as well, who is significantly bigger, um, they're just terrified. And you don't do anything. It's just a general presence. And that's why we were like, um, yeah, CIA for sure. And also the multiple languages thing felt like a trigger. And in, another thing too, the schools that we went to both in Japan and China, most of the expat kids – uh, especially the Americans, multiple parents worked for the same companies. When we moved to Japan, for instance, my first day, I had never heard of Cincinnati, Ohio in my life. <laughs> and I walked in as a American white kid and everyone goes, oh, are you from Cincinnati? Your parents work for P&G. I'm like, I don't know what either of those things are. Of wonderful, kind people. But there was this sense that everyone was like, oh, we have to pretend that we're doing, like, <laughs> this is the job stuff. Show. It really felt like hired actors to be like, <laughs> yes, we too work in lithium. <laughs> and, it, and that means we do, but, you know, we'll see. Like, the, I still have the theory. I'm so appreciative of all the people here today playing you're into hired the, actors yeah, theory. you're so good at your right. jobs. Um, oh, I, I really, it, it means so much to me and my family that the the, the ploy continues. <laughs> All the people at the Lithium Conference this week, thank you so much for, for being here so we could go on a family vacation that's close to me. And there's even been people that I've seen like in the elevator wearing their little Lithium Conference lanyards and like, you guys really leaned you into really, this. You really <laughs> made it happen, Dad. My screenwriting professor in college was totally aware of my whole theory, and we've had a lot of conversations. But um, we'll see. I'll keep you all posted on my lithium podcast that I'm going to start next week. My dad did used to be Jack Bauer on my phone. You follow the handler. I'm going after the bomber. 
also evidence he was obsessed with the show 24 for a period <laughs> like absolutely obsessed he and Aaron like marathoned it in Australia once there was we, a we did we, we watched the whole season but, in, a, in a day but it felt like Literally. it didn't just feel like I like this show it felt like this deep like relation that he had to Kiefer Sutherland on the show like he understood <laughs> deeply what Kiefer goes through in his day to day job like he's like yeah that's what I do when I'm quote unquote traveling. Um, I have some very fun memories of going to the plant in Belmont. That would be Bessemer, no, Bessemer City, City, North Carolina. Okay. It started with a B. I was like <laughs> eight. In the growth in North we're, Carolina. We're close. So. It was both like 30 minutes from our house. But I just have a, a very fond memory of um, they dunked something in like nitrogen in front of all the kids and like froze something and then shattered it. I was like, this is really exciting. Lithium. And then we got ice cream. So <laughs> it was a really great day. Do they still have take your daughter to work day? They do. Isn't they it do. children now and though? I work out of my apartment. So <laughs> listen to the computer and, you know, I have a hit. If, if it's in your part, like, so. So we go, my wife works for Bloomberg. Okay. And so they have, you know, a huge office in Midtown Manhattan and uh, food and, yeah. So, so they, do, they do that. Do you get to go too? Well, <laughs> you know, it's funny. They, they have a limit. Oh, so I haven't okay. made the cut. Yes, and, and Aaron is my uh, social media hero because I'm, I'm still trying to get up to having a third of the followers that she has, and the gap is continuing to widen. So that hey, you got to write a book. I just want to say congratulations if you made it this far, whether it was in one or multiple sittings. I appreciate uh, the audience of the Global Lithium Podcast and remain astounded that it has been downloaded in over 130 countries and that uh, there is such a core group of supporters around the world for what is truly a niche podcast. I look forward to doing perhaps another 100 episodes. I don't know. I may not get to that number, but uh, for at least the foreseeable future, I will continue to record podcast with guests that hopefully you find interesting. Thanks again.